I know what you're thinking. Another psychic on the show? Yes, because number one, the audience loves them. And secondly, because this is a whole different ballgame from what fan favorite Matthew Stapley does. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Nancy Orlin Weber. Nancy has been a psychic detective for 47 years now. That's more than a lifetime for many of us. During that time, she has been utilized by numerous police agencies to aid in solving major murder cases. She's also been featured on TV documentaries worldwide, including broadcasting companies such as NBC, HLN, Court TV, A&E, and even Sci-Fi. It's a very interesting topic to talk about because even if you are skeptical about the psychic nature of her career, it's still a real-world occurrence that can happen any day in any place on major crimes. Let's hear how psychics get involved in murders. Happy Halloween, everyone! Welcome to the show, Nancy Orlin Weber. Oh, thank you, Colton. I am honored and delighted to be here. Yes, thank you so much for being on the show. Why don't you give an introduction about yourself for the audience? I am best known as a psychic detective, but that's not my life, and that's not where I started. I became a nurse. I had a uh, attempt on my life while I was pregnant by my first husband. I call him the first because he's no longer <clears throat> shortly after. And it helped me break open and find my own path and realize that it was much more important to stay me and not be what I used to be called by my cousins, a goody two shoes who is never trouble. <laughs> but that trouble was all inside brewing. <laughs> and from that time on, I realized that just say me, even if I don't like what I think or feel, I don't, it doesn't matter. Just stay me and see who I am. And so I opened up a practice when I needed to leave nursing and went into be a full-fledged medical intuitive psychic. And 19, that was 1975, 1980, the police came calling when I moved to New Jersey and they never stopped calling. So I've worked a lot of crime cases uh, successfully and we've gotten quite a few murderers to fully confess. As one detective said, I told them there was a witness, an eyewitness. And I looked at him and said, there was no witness. He said, well, your third eye was working and you saw him. So we can say that. <laughs> hey. And I thought, okay. That works for me. So that's what I'm known as since documentary started on Court TV in 2004 and then many others after. However, most of my work deals with helping other people become fully themselves, find their own spiritual path, and know that the word psychic means soul. So do you want to treat it as a sacred power or not? And if you do, it doesn't matter where you point the light as long as you point the light and you keep your heart open and your ethics in, intact. So that's my favorite thing. I see clients, or right now I see them on Zoom mostly and phone. Uh, and I've seen them for, I don't know, 50 years, almost 47. It's been a wild journey and it's been a fabulous one. And I'm sticking to that. Yeah. <laughs> No, it sounds like a great time and having, I mean, such a long career as well, like mm -hmm. 47 years, that is an impressive run of anyone doing anything because we yeah. don't stick to anything like that. And I'm only 50. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, uh, I am 78 and I find that I am learning new every time. So I do a lot of other things besides them. I'm an author of two books. Both of them are true stories, uh, both one criminal, one animals, because I love pets. I work with them. And I always think, do you really know what your dog is saying? 
you really know what that horse wants? Because I've worked with a lot of them and the answers can be very funny. Interesting. Very, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, the, the show base is semi-familiar with uh, the psychic events as, as we go through them because uh, we had Matthew Stapley on the show and he's fantastic and he answered all of our questions despite you know us uh, giving him a little bit of a hard time the first time around with some audience questions that were all genuinely good-hearted, but he gave uh, some of the best responses I have heard to some of those questions. Interesting. Yeah. I know one of the things I do, I answer certain kinds of questions. I stick to things that are non-invasive about their personal life. I find it very different. But I also believe that if people knew how powerful their gifts are, you know, once you know that, then life is exciting. Yeah, my, one of my favorite animated uh, films was Inside Out because it showed so much of what goes on inside. And yet, if you look at that, what's going on inside anybody at the, any point? I'm always dreaming up new things to do. I love that. In the middle of anything, I have an inspiration. I am recording it because I don't want to lose it. And I find that if everybody treated themselves like they were a gift, we'd have a very different planet. I think you're absolutely right, because you know most of us, we have a thought and then we're kind of like, well, you know, self-doubt creeps in and we're like, oh, I'll do it. Can I do this? Or is it important enough that I do it or any other number of things? And then we just let it go and you don't think about it and it drifts mm -hmm. off. And eventually you think about it years later and you're like, oh yeah, I've had this thought before. I remember that once. I'm sure I've had many like that too over time. And I understood that that meant that the insecurity in me was letting opportunities pass by. And sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't. But as somebody who looks back at long-term and short-term, I had a different viewpoint later on that maybe the rhythm is not a match between the personal growth and the universe yet. And they have to be a match. And when they're a match, when I'm in the rhythm that is for the highest good for all, not only me, or not only you, it has to also be me. So there has to be a real match on that spiritual path means not interrupting anybody else's spiritual path. And when I do that, magic happens. So now I look back at the same things you just said. And I always think, okay, so there's a reason I didn't do that. And I didn't know it then. And now I know. I'm ready. Like, I wrote a book in 1995 on my crime cases. I interviewed all the detectives that I wanted to pull into that, right? And I wrote a book. And it was self-published. And it was horrible. Horribly written. <laughs> it had pictures from the newspapers because I was all over papers and TV. So it had all that, right? But I was afraid to sell it. So I sold the thousand that I made. I think I have two left as a reminder of how awful it was. And I sold them mostly to my clients because they didn't care. They just wanted to read it. Sure. And if I was public speaking, they bought it. And so I redid it. And now I just redid it again. Okay. So long term and short term are very different because my viewpoint of what's important in life changes, except for the core. You know, I think I always quote Da Vinci in me. I love his work. You point a light in a direction. And everything is connected to everything. Those are my two quotes I always use on Da Vinci to remember. To go ahead and focus, point my light strongly in a direction, do it. If I'm opposite somebody giving a reading or whatever, then I, I have to be fully present not at the cost to me and not at the cost to them. And then magic happens. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting because you kind of, like you said, you did all these interviews, you got to, you know, talk about the cases that you worked on and then, you know, redid the book, did some editing, got to a new stage, like getting to release that. I mean, things have, I'm sure evolved over time or expanded on the story that you already had where you're like, Oh, there's new stuff oh, to yeah. add to this. 
In fact, there's one that is now 40 years and ongoing now, even though some, uh, some of the experts believe it's a settled matter, sort of. And it isn't. Can I give it to you? and yeah, say go, if I go think for about it. it. Okay. Uh, it's the a body was discovered, I think, in 1980 or 81. And it, unfortunately, I don't like giving all the details of it for people who are sensitive to this stuff. So they couldn't identify. But they knew it was a young female, probably in her teens. And they had a task force. They came out in droves. And one of the task force members wrote the bill on missing persons in the United States. He wrote it for the senators and they, he never wanted his name on it. He was on the task force and we became friends. And so I came in a year later again with them and with the uh, people local there. And she was called Princess Doe. First person entered into the missing and exploited children's bureau, whatever. And uh, nobody knew and nobody came forth and they didn't know her to be a runaway and nothing. So I worked and I went over to a place. I pointed, I walked and I went over to where she was found without them telling me. And I said, she's showing me who killed her. And there's more to the story, except at that point, the main part of this in our discussion is I turned back at the prosecutor's office and I said, his first name is John. His last name begins with an R. It's a one syllable. I cannot make it out. He's got a Western belt buckle he wears all the time. And he's got a scar under his right cheek and he's a reddish kind of hair. And he's uh, very dangerous and he killed her with a hammer. So. End of story. Nothing happened. Well, I took them places. I believe she was, he was. They had no lead. They didn't know. So it was dropped. No one ever identified her. Five years later, I get a client in, and it turns out that I could see that her sister had just been murdered. And so the detective who's on the case, the investigator, who's the same one that was on the case with Princess Doe, he calls me, asks me if I'd come out. Fresh crime scene, which is why I don't discuss. It's in the book, if anybody likes gore, pardon me. But I ripped through it as fast as I can and as clean for the sake of the family that's left. And so I describe what happened to her and they say confirmed, confirmed. But before I describe it, I walk into the it's a two story and she's first floor and somebody lives upstairs. And I said, the killer is upstairs. His first name is John. He wears a Western belt buckle. He has a scar on his right cheek. I can see him in my mind. And they don't say anything. Then I go in and I describe how she was killed, with what instruments, everything. And they go, yes, true, all of it. But that's not the killer. So we go back to the office. I said, yes, it is. They said, no, there's a guy named John Reese upstairs, but he's not the killer. I said, yes, he is. <laughs> and I said, you have to go back and look. They said, but no, we did polygraph and the expert has never been wrong in 23 years. I said, he's wrong. You're telling me she was killed at 1130? No, she wasn't. She was killed later. They started wondering. They only questioned him till 1130. I said, do me a favor. Just go back and look at him. So they did. And they quickly brought him in and they put it on a camera and he confessed fully. And went away for life, and he died in October of last year. So, more. So now John Reese is dead, but over the years, Princess Doe has never been identified. And I kept begging the prosecutors who now, that one retired, another one brought me in, and I said, I'm telling you it's John Reese. But he was in prison, and they didn't bother. Nobody did. And they found um, a hammer. During the second case, uh, Elizabeth uh, died, the elder person, nurse, 42. Hmm. And they found a hammer, but it didn't match the DNA, the blood. I don't think they ever tested it for Princess Stone. So I'm sitting there 
And suddenly, about two months ago, Princess Doe was identified for the first time as a 17-year-old who was thrown out by her parent, her mother, in uh, New York somewhere. Okay, so she's identified. And a man who is in prison for life for multiple murders confessed to the killing, but he's not John Reese. So you're like, interesting. <laughs> See? So I made a list of everything. He had never killed, according to him, prior to this moment. Uh, in any, in New, He killed in New York State and I think maybe Pennsylvania, but never New Jersey. And you have to know New Jersey to understand where out of the way this place was. It was very rural. It was He threw her down a ravine in a, a cemetery. And one of the things I remembered and looked back at my notes was I always said there was a second man. So how did I hear a murder victim, if I did, and see John Reese five years before I nailed him for a murder on another murder? Why would I see him then if he had nothing to do with it? Okay, that's the puzzle and the mystery. And that's the kind of thing I live with in my work. And fortunately, one of the detectives, I'm friends with a core group of detectives I work a lot with, and a lot of them are in the documentary. So one of them, he stops by on, uh, I, I'm a minister, so I did the baby blessing for his grandbaby, you know, that kind of thing. And we're friends. And so he comes by and he says, hey, you want to meet Rich Pompelio? Who's he? Well, he's an attorney. His son was murdered 30 years before. But he has worked on 10,000 pro bono cases for crime victims. And he formed a New Jersey crime victim advocate. He's written books for judges. He gives them out free. He is devoted. And I think you two would get along. So I called Rich and we have been talking for hour upon hour. And he's gone to the prosecutor's office on Princess Doe uh, out there to see if they would be willing to look at all the anomalies we're talking about, not just my psychic stuff. But where's the hammer? What happened to the one they found in the swamp that I told them was there? And he told it with Princess Doe also. So, so sometimes being psychic is not so <laughs> close, you know, it closes a door. No, it just opened a whole bunch of other doors that may never be resolved. Yeah. Yeah, like not everything is a very crisp, clean, like, okay, I got this information. I guess we're done with it forever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the same thing. I think, you know, we can intellectually understand our own issues, but can we fix them uh, through the intellect? Most people can't. Can't we think it, change the thought until we really work hard on those things? And then maybe we resolve all, maybe not. Yeah. I find it fascinating, though. Yeah, of course. <laughs> And you do know a lot of detectives because even like the back page of your book has several glowing reviews from mm -hmm. uh, several police investigators that have worked with you on cases. Yes. They're my friends. I just interviewed one of them and uh, hope to share with the world what they feel and think. Because there's a code in the U.S. and I don't know the other countries codes, but they have a a book of codes, not only code for writing, uh, you know, reports and stuff, but in it, they tell you to use any tool, even psychics, whatever, whatever helps you. And the first detective I ever worked with said it very well. He's when I said, why do you trust me so much? You put me, you know, I, I'm in an odd position when I was starting. And he said, well, if we have thousands of, of clues, or none, we need help. Point me in a direction. I went, oh, that I can do. Yeah. Yeah. And so he freed me up, and I always thank him. Yeah, it was one of those that I wondered where I'm like, how exactly do you get the police knocking on your door requesting your services? That's, they did. And they, I think it's also, like yourself, I don't look to be the psychic in the case. I look to be a team player. Uh, helping on a puzzle. I, after I was uh, working with that detective and another detective there and then another, and we caught, <laughs> um, 
New Year's, I think it was New Year's Day, I picked up the phone to the chief of detectives who I had worked with for quite a while at that point. And I said, I need you to come over here now. And he said, no, just tell me over the phone. I said, that's the whole problem. You must come over here right now. So he came and I said, there's a bug in your chief of police's office. He said, how do you know? We just found it. I said, what do you think? I didn't want to talk over the phone. (laughs) He's being bugged. He said, yeah, I know. Can we work with you? I said, of course. That's why I'm (laughs) like, no, I called you for kicks and giggles. (laughs) He brings over with the chief and the lieutenant 36 photos of all the police force. And I look through them and I pick up one photo. I go, oh, man, you better get the FBI to raid his home. They said, why? I said, well, he lives out of state. Yes, he moved to Pennsylvania after his house was on fire, collected insurance, and bought a new home. I said, well, he's stolen a lot of guns and 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 barrels of blow-up stuff from the evidence room. And I just thought to myself, do you have a look? Yeah. I was shaking. And they said, well, here's the bug. Can you help us? I said, okay, I don't know. I was so excited by holding something and seeing if I could get anything. I had never held that. That was exciting. And so I paced and paced until I was quiet and just let it happen. No pressure. I have to wait for that moment of no pressure. And up came, I'll never forget, on a weird date, looking at it now, September 11th. And I got Morristown Radio Shack. And they looked at me and said, well, tomorrow you're going to pose as a police secretary and go with him to the Radio Shack there and pull all the receipts. And there it was, the exact one. And so we were able to trace it. And they did do a search warrant for his home in Pennsylvania. They found all the evidence. And then Ross, the detective, was calling me on the phone. And I said, what about the barrels of explosives? And he said, barrels. I said, what? You didn't do the barrels? So he went back to the FBI. They got two more specific search warrants. They got the two barrels. They were done. He made a deal, this guy. (laughs) Right. And got off, sort of, by telling on others, everyone he sold to and the big dealers. And then he moves to another state. But because of what happened, we followed everything. And Ross, the detective, had a a tie-in with the FBI after that. And so the guy was caught on a murder and put away for life. So that was one of my early things. I've done fingerprint and um, what's the other one? What is it called? DNA report. And I can point out what's wrong with them. It's weird. I have no idea how I do it. Yeah. You're just like, it's literally intuitive. (laughs) It has to be. I think... Uh, in this, my husband's science, big time, and psychic. So he's really great at helping me explore. But I think that there is this culmination in all of us of not only the, the internal life experiences, ancestral history, genetics, DNA, life, you know, peer, in utero experience, everything is kind of mulling around in a soup of knowledge and wisdom, right? And then you get this universal flow coming through that has everything for life. And maybe those pieces just fall into place and and we capture. It's what you said about thoughts before. So a thought comes up later on, right? So I think the same thing as our video camera internally, our third eye. It has optical receptors. It's got all the, it's got very much, except it's tiny rice bran, but it takes all the light wave makes it into a great transformer of electromagnetic activity for the brain. So he's, it's like, oh my God, what is this? But I think it's recording everything. And sometimes we can see what it's recording and it's a culmination of everything. I have no clue, but I love thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very interesting because how many cases do you think you've worked on over the years? Oh God, hundreds. Okay. So uh- I- yeah. And to say, you know, an innumerable number where we're like, we don't even know. It's just a lot at this point. I think a lot of people, you know, we get 
very little exposure to the thought of like the psychic detective where mm-hmm. you're like, oh yeah, they, they want to, you know, in Hollywood, they want to like hand them the murder weapon and then be like, is the, is this, and you're like, I don't usually get handed. things. I, it's interesting. You say that. Um, I have a friend who is a filmmaker, scriptwriter, retired his, one of his films became the biggest sell of the year that year, many years ago. And, but we're best friends. And I found a missing film for him in the film library. Apparently there are hundreds of thousands of film and I directed him right to the missing one. So we've always become close friends over 40 years or so. And we're talking and I, uh, we're looking at a film because somebody had approached me about a film before. And I said, unless I have complete say about what's real and what is not, no. The answer is I turned down a film years ago. I turned down reality shows years ago and said, no, thank you. Unless I have a big say about it. No, this is not for show. This is to help people. And if you don't like that, bye-bye. Not interested. Yeah, you're like, I don't need you chopping the things I say and taking them out of context and then trying to like put a weird spin on things. Just to make it a hook. There's plenty of hook in the miracles and magic we all can make. If everyone understood that, you can be, you know, I've been paralyzed physically because of some things that happened and I still worked. I could still do my work. So people, no matter what their condition, unless they are unable completely, can still do things of value wherever they are and whatever their circumstances and whatever their gifts are, we don't know until we dig deep. And I find it, delightful. I work with students for decades since 75. And my joy is finding them having their aha movements when they go, that's all it is. It's that easy. I go, yeah, it's that easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's one of those that's like, you know, if you think that you've lost your purpose because you've lost some like motor function, you Um, have so much more to offer than that. Like no matter who you are, you've got way more to offer than just like the the physical ability to move your body. (laughs) Absolutely. I was told my prognosis, well, I've been told I was going to die in eight hours. I didn't. And then I was told I'd have the permanent. Hopefully that wasn't seven hours ago. (laughs) (laughs) Not unless somebody's out there aiming at me. No. (laughs) This is, I was uh, two weeks after I gave birth. And I was dying. And I went, no, you don't know me. And I discovered that anger was a very healthy tool used properly and pointed in the right direction. So I find that in in our world now, the device, I am jumping because you make me think of who you are, Colton, is so uh, what I'll call a, a... W-H-O-L-E, whole, body, mind, spirit, intact, which is such a blessing for everybody. And I'm not saying that to flatter you. I don't. If you know me at all, most people call it the hot seat because I do not care to mask over anything I get, which is why I don't ever publicly read anybody. Yeah. But I can, I can easily say about who you are. The ethics and integrity are so intact, they're beautiful. In that sense, to me, I have been looking a lot and writing a lot about the divisiveness is war within is war without. Terrified people do terrible things, either to themselves or others. And if we can help people get that terror down, it can be a different planet. Because you're blind at that point to taking care of self and caring about how others feel, the empathy, the connection. And we see the results of all of it again and again throughout history. And I know that. I think that making that difference matters more than the hook, the whatever. So, yeah, I have seen people who are, I'm permanently disabled, supposedly. I walk, I talk, I work nonstop. I love it. I keep making more things. I'm crocheting for indigenous children all the time for winter so that they stay warm. I I just 
Life is fascinating if we let it no matter what. Yeah. We can lie there. But if we're in serious pain, emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually, or any of that blend, then we have to focus on moving that. And I think the greatest gift we give people anywhere is for them to know two things. One is, been there, done that. You can do it. Got out of that hole. You can do it. And the second part is, do you know how fascinating it is to be you yet? You need to know that because once you know it, you'll be laughing like we are all the time <laughs> because it's fun to find new things about yourself and you don't have to even move a muscle to know that. You have an instrument. Your instrument is your mind. It isn't you. It's an electromagnetic activity. It's yours to do whatever you like with. What would you like? So I mentor a lot of people who want to be psychic, psychic detectives, or just enjoy working with me for whatever. And I love that because you see the change quickly in people who realize, oh, it's okay. Because not everybody has nice thoughts in them. I know I don't. Yeah. Oh, I could be very feisty. But I like that in me. Yeah, I mean, and that's just like, I think one of the great things about teaching, either being taught something or teaching other people something, is that like you learn something, not just about the topic, but about yourself. Because like, yeah, you take in the raw factual information, whatever it is, and then like you process that as an individual. And you're like, well, how do I feel about this thing? Does it excite me? Does it bore me? Does it, you know, drive me to do something else or something better? And that's what I've liked about, you know, looking through a lot of your stuff is it's like teaching seems to be a very large part of who you are and what you do. I so are you. So there. <laughs> <laughs> we you have a gift that's obvious. I know mine are. And when we learn that it's a gift. We treat it differently. We have more respect for it. And it's hard to have respect for something for a lot of people out there who think this is either woo-woo or their family thinks they're crazy or whatever. And I'm here hoping that they open up and understand probably if you come from the East or Far East, meaning India and Asia, okay? Yeah. then you grew up with much more respect for your soul's channeling from the universe, from the divine. You grew up with that, hopefully. The West had a very different approach. Ownership, I call it. Now, the East probably had their own ownership issues. I'm not saying they didn't. I'm not a historian in detail. I get an overview. But I do get that the issues we face in many of the cultures here I quote Gandhi when somebody asked him, what do you think of civilization? He said, oh, I'm hoping one day we get real civilized. <laughs> <laughs> Which means respect the other person. I worked in a cute psych unit and we made history because of how we treated people. I could take a catatonic. I remember he was in for 20 years in an institute, coming in for a re-diagnosis maybe. Catatonic, nonverbal. They put him in a chair because he wouldn't do anything. You had to move him yourself, right? And he's sitting about eight feet from me, and I'm opposite him in a chair. And within 15 minutes, I got him talking. I was nonverbal with him. I answered him through my hands the way I watched his hands. And I thought part of me will understand the emotional language he was experiencing and expressing. And so I picked that up as my cue to do the same. And 15 minutes later, he said, what's your name? And I said, Nancy, what's yours? He said, John. I said, hey, John, how are you doing? He said, much better now, thanks. And somebody passed by and said, oh, my God, he's talking. And I said, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> you are not helping. <laughs> and John goes, thank you. <laughs> I said, no problem. You talk when you want to only. Don't worry about it. He said, okay, I will. So he spoke after 20 years. And I'm thinking, some things are simply empathy and 
and communication between the way they need to speak. Talking with nonverbal children, special needs, their parents are like, they bring them in their arms or whatever. And I would look and I'd say, he loves the high chair you put him in with that little, you have a block with um, like ABCs, but it's not ABCs. It's it's like uh, D-O-G. Duh. They said, yes. I said, he tells me he loves it. Well, what does that do? Right? So why would people be afraid it's woo-woo if you can offer hmm, support to people who need it when they need it and really know what they need? Not just what you want to say and say nice things, but what do they need at that moment? So that's how I look at it. And I just, I want everybody to be able to do it because we have a world of hurting. And so anybody, you know, I can be hurting. I can be rejected and disappointed or whatever I am in the moment. And I can't help somebody else at that moment, but I can help them the next moment. And I want everybody to be able to do things like that because that will bring a change here. And we desperately finally need that change on this earth. Yeah. So that's my point and I'm sticking to it, Colton. No, it's a great point because you're like, the more you look inside, the more you help yourself, the more you, you know, understand yourself, the more you can start putting that outward, you know, being empathetic, like seeing other people in a way that, you know, the way you discussed this catatonic man is it's like, it's kind of like immersion therapy, right? Or immersion uh, into a language where you're like, yeah, you don't understand it. But if you just jump in feet first and then try and figure it out, you have a better chance than trying to like center yourself in, okay, I'm in the middle of Brazil and I'm going to approach everything from English speaking perspectives. Like, well, that's not going to get you very far. Zero. Right. Yeah, that's a great analogy. You make me think of my someone who was about two or three lying on the floor screaming. And I got down on the floor and laid down next to him and I started screaming too and started banging around like he did. And he just looked at me suddenly. He said, What's wrong? I said, I don't know, but I'm frustrated. How are you? He said, Yeah, me too. He said, But I'm much better now. I said, Me too. And that was it. And I'm thinking, how many parents get so embarrassed by their kids, right? Yeah. And how many get so uh, upset with their kid throwing a temper tantrum? He ended up throwing another one years later. He hardly ever did that. I mean, that was a one time. And then one other time when a toxicologist was in the living room with me, telling me about a man who was dying in a hospital and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. And my son walks in and because I was talking to somebody else, he threw himself on the floor. He must have been about four, five, the most. And he started yelling. And so all that did is make me focus even more on helping the person because that's who needed it. He didn't need it. I knew he was fine. He was just getting it out of his system. Sure. And it was fascinating because it helped me. My son's behavior actually made me focus even stronger. Knowing he was okay, he was entitled to his expression, and I was entitled to try and help this man and save his life. And we did. And those things taught me what I can tell others and teach others is how you get the pressure off yourself because that'll always shut doors. It will never open them. Yeah. It's, right? it's metaphorically and sometimes literally cutting out the noise. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, that's a good. Thank you. I like that. <laughs> it just rounds it all up. Yeah. And I find that it is such a, a key because the right hemisphere, uh, in split brain studies, and I've had history with it, uh, that right hemisphere is either very intuitive or very fear driven. It's inspiration, creativity, but it doesn't have a pragmatic part. It just absorbs and it has to cross over, but fear won't let it cross over to the practical, to the left hemisphere and get it on earth and get it to apply well. And so fear drives us away from solutions and creativity, inspiration, you know, and believing, finding a belief system, whatever that is for somebody that 
supports their highest good, whatever that is. I, I know I was called by somebody a witch fairy. And they went, I love that term. That way I can have wings and a cape all at once. Yeah. You're like, sign me up. Yeah, right. Sign me up for that one. I think it's adorable. So if you don't take seriously the outer world's impression of who you are as much as you pay attention to who you think you are. And if your fear, then you work on it. And I teach a simple thing to some people who would like to know it. Really simple. If you want to distinguish the difference between your fear, your imagination, and what's tuning in for real, your intuition, then you can do one of several things. You ask yourself and develop an asking just like a detective works outside, you work inside as a detective. You pretend and you make a voice inside that's just questions, not worried, nothing. And says, is that my fear or is that my imagination or is that real? Oh, yeah, it's real. Oh, am I sure it's real? Oh, yeah. Okay. If it's a thought of a, an intuition of something happening, I wrote it down. I wrote down the date. And the reason for it is you can forget what you thought. You can forget a little bit of what you pick up. Dreams, you know, if, even if you record it right away. If you don't record it and go back three months later and remember it because you know it so clearly, no, not true. You will not. You will lose a lot of data. Yeah. So if you're speaking inside, nicely without caring about the answer just no pressure just is it and if you take that and start a journal on your intuition you will be training yourself for when you're there and when you're not i did that for three years everything voices yeah voice in my head i had many conversations in my head with everybody and i learned oh my god we are wireless because I would then write down so-and-so I was thinking of and what happened to your arm. And I'd pick up the phone and say to the person I knew, hi, how are you doing? And they'd go, I'm okay. And I go, but any chance you, you have an arm injury? Yeah, I've got a cast. What, how do you know? I said, I don't know. I was thinking about you and that just popped up. So I didn't, at that time, I didn't say, oh, I'm, I'm a psychic or anything. I didn't even like that word. It was just a discovery that wireless would be coming technically on this earth because we are wireless. We're always in communication. We just don't notice it all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those moments where you're like, you start thinking of someone and then they call you and you're like, what was that? that's a, a weird a connection that i can't understand you pick it up and you're like i was just thinking about you and they're like yeah i was just thinking about you too so i gave you a call it's like okay yeah. interesting isn't it funny yeah yeah and uh, years later i realized oh uh cbs and ham radio and then computers and technology and i worked at the un on something and uh in a committee and i said this is before we had wireless. And I said, is it possible for us to have computers to talk to each other? And they said, what makes you say that? I said, well, think of people in regions where they don't have the help you need in an emergency. Wouldn't it be nice if they could see like a TV, you know, and speak to somebody who's an expert in the field somewhere else in the world who can tell them what to do? And they said, oh, we know a group of men who you probably would like to talk to a think tank. I said, oh, who? I was such an innocent. <laughs> I had no clue. This is like 40 years ago. So I go and speak to this group of men and I ask them, they said, oh, sure, we can do that. I said, oh, I didn't know you were doing this. They said, no, but we can, we can figure it out. And I looked at the onset, cell phones, everything. And now we can communicate with the world. And I think, well, we need to communicate with each other anyhow and realize that that's a parallel to what we do. 
It's just an outgrowth of what's real in who we are. Animals communicate. Back in, I don't remember when, but Mount Sinai in New York State and New York City and a hospital in Russia. This goes back maybe 70s or 80s. Both of them the same day reported a mutated bacteria never seen before. That was the onset of MRSA. How did those bacteria both mutate exactly the same? How did patents, and we know this actually, again and again, right? This is before we had telephones and all the rest of it. Patents would be developed in one country and another, and they never spoke. They didn't know each other, and it still happens. We're wireless. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's one of those fun, like, it's a human connection And maybe it's part of that where we say like, you know, we have this intuitive nature, you know, Mm -hmm. call it a psychic nature, call it whatever you want. We have something in all of us that at whatever performance level we might be just like, you know, your skill level for anything else, you might just be a little more in touch with that. And you have these weird coincidences more and more often and then you never explore it. Ah, yeah, and that's the key. Again, it's the never exploring that makes people, I believe, feel less important in their own lives. Have you, Colton, have you done things, um, anything that was new that you were surprised that you could do that you didn't know that about you? Yeah, I like to do things like that regularly because I'm like, what's the worst that happens? I'm bad at it. Exactly. I want to learn how to draw. And because I was a horrible doodler, I would rip paper. <laughs> I bought a book and I bought pencils. I decided to do it right hand, left hand. And I went and found a book. And it was kind of funny. I like not to look. I walk down and feel it and feel where my finger wants to go to the book and pull it. And it said, Drawing with the Right Side of the Brain by Betty Edwards. And I went, Oh, my God. And then I read, she's thanking Dr. Ron Meyerson. That was my first husband's boss in split brain studies. And I went, well, I got to get the book. And I, at 10 o'clock at night, after I was finished working and whatever, and I would draw. And three months later, I could do whatever I wanted. And I made stuff on my uh, website. I give poetry and blogs. So I'm always into something, whatever comes up creatively because i think that's longevity for your brain for your mind exciting so when you say that yeah i'm thrilled because that's the attitude that gets everybody colt would you just say that attitude again about trying something new i always i'm always trying new things because you know the worst thing that happens is that i'm bad at it the worst thing that happens that i'm bad at it thank you i love that I really, I find that if people can understand that, so what? If you're striving for perfection, the only thing we need perfect is safety features in something. That's it. Everything else is the best we can do. So as long as we do it, if we're having fun with it. So when I start something new, if I don't have a lot of fun with it, I kind of drop it. And then maybe years later, I do it again. It doesn't matter. You can pick it up once you start, right? Yeah. Well, that's one like there is always a small variation of something that you've already tried that maybe you weren't very good at, like painting. I am not a very good painter, right? Like if I draw something out, I can paint it okay, right? I'm about a third grader. I can paint within the lines. I'm fine at it. And it was something that like I wanted to be good at and I wasn't good at and I'm still not good at. But um, later on, I wanted to do, you know, manual dexterity exercises to help the, you know, the fine tuning of my hands. Um, So I picked up very, very small objects to paint and turns out I'm pretty good at those. So I'm like, I already had all the paint. And I'm like, okay, well, I have all the supplies. I could just do this. And I did it because I already had all the supplies. 
And I was like, well, I'm probably not going to be very good at this because I wasn't very good at painting, but I already have everything. So the literally the worst thing that happens is whatever I pick up today, like I'm just, I paint it badly. And I painted it and people were like, oh, it looks great. And I'm like, oh, apparently I can just do this version of painting. <laughs> Isn't that fabulous? Yeah. And that's such a great, great way to teach people that the element of painting was in you, but you didn't know until you tested it and then you retested. You know, that's fantastic. I love that. That's so much fun. I mean, everything has that because it's like, oh, I always wanted to be a novelist and write horror novels like Stephen King. And it turns out like the best thing you can do is writing fantastical poetry. And you're like, well, this isn't what I wanted to do. It's like, no, but it's it's in the same so vein are. and you just didn't try it. <laughs> exactly. So true. <laughs> but when I saw a drawing, I thought I would be, at that point, I was getting much stronger in my life and much more confident. And I figured, oh, I do broad, what a, no, they're delicate and lacy. <laughs> I thought, who are you? Oh, that's exciting because it teaches us who we are doesn't it? And that who we are is not who we were and who we will be. We're in a process. And so, oh yeah, absolutely. I love it. And even when we do something well, I discovered, um, I love dancing. I, I took ballet until 11 years, 12, the time I was two, loved it, wanted it forever. And then I couldn't. And so when I started going out dancing, I realized I enjoyed that more, even though I would have passion about ballet as a child. But man, did I love just free dancing my way. And then the trick was, how can I dance different moves than I've ever done before? Because that's mind mapping. That's neural mapping. That is opening up more doors of healing body, mind, spirit always giving it new processes. So what you're saying is the saying exactly that. And that's something about you. <laughs> Ken, it's, you just, it's natural in you. And a lot of us have to learn that one. I was pretty, um, goody two-shoes meant I was very shy, painfully so. And loved homework. I was not liked in school a lot because I loved homework. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't, I was a tomboy. I I didn't like talking with the girls about boys. I thought, eh, boring. Can, can we go play stickball in the street, please, guys? Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those that, like, you have to find your passion in it. Because if you looked at me in, like, elementary to middle school, I was excelling in all of the technical aspects of like going to school. And then high school, I had a absolutely terrible GPA. And they were like, well, why? We know you can do the projects. And I'm like, because I don't care about them at all. And so like, I got into one class and they were like, oh, you have a, a perfect grade in this class. And I'm like, yeah, because I finally found something that's interesting. The rest of it's boring me so badly that I can't apply myself. Even if I was good at it, I don't care enough to do it. <laughs> I totally relate completely. They put me into a three-term math and one term in high school. I was so mad that I ignored the, the year. And then we had finals. And I never forget, my father came down into the basement where I was working with the book. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm studying the book for tomorrow's finals. He said, what, why? I said, because I haven't read it yet. He said, you're doing it now? I said, yes. He said, why? I said, I couldn't stand the class, but I have to take my finals. And so I got something like an A minus in the final. And the guy, the teacher said, I said, I studied last night. I just didn't like the class. Yeah. And I You're don't like, like I the have... project, but I don't want to fail. Yeah. I have a need to pass. I don't have a need to be interested. <laughs> exactly. And I think that that's the piece that we discover when we allow ourselves to be ourselves, that we're all unique. Everybody is. And when we find that, it's 
you know, as an adult, when I had children, it's why I wanted them in Montessori. I didn't want them having to do math at 10 a.m. because everybody does it at 10. Maybe your brain is wired differently than the other child. So I coaxed it in as best as I could when I could afford it so that they would have an opportunity to know life is not that. And both of them are entrepreneurs now, totally, for years, and doing their own things, independent of what anybody else thought of it. Didn't matter. They knew. And I want that for everybody because I know what it does for fulfilling. And that psychic world, I'll go right back to it, is what teaches us because it's the blend. People who, who if I may, uh, the psychic world is a, uh, a mixed bag. Some people rely on it without mm, caring to look deeper about themselves. They'll rely on others to do this for them. And sometimes it's useful, but not when you only rely on that. And sometimes the psychics are not well-versed in how you help. What's the difference if I can tell you a name is somebody on the other side? Pardon me, I don't think that matters. Yes, it does in a murder, but no, it doesn't in any other way. Does it matter if I can describe who they are, their life, their feelings? You know, I just spoke to a little four-year-old who's on the other side. And the best thing I could do, his name was Gunnar. And his mom, his, his older brother, his dad having a terrible time. And so I'm giving her some things he's telling me. And then it comes through. Gunner says, why don't you tell them to do a Gunner? Because Gunner had the kind of um, soul expression that was amazing. He would go chiropractor with his six-year-old brother who was terrified of the chiropractor. And Gunner, with all, he was born with problems physically, had many surgeries, angel through it all, helped others. Four years old, he would jump on the chiropractic table and say, see, this is how you do it, Grace. Go ahead, I know you can. Right, amazing. So I turned to the mom and I said, okay, he's telling you, do a Gunner. And you go back and make a plaque about that for Bryce's room. You do a gunner and you talk openly about what's happened. Go ahead. Well, she just changed on a dime. For me, that matters far more than knowing his name. But that came through. And to me, that mattered far more. So when, when people think of psychic, I want them to realize that's half the job. That's not the job. Sorry. What comes through can be garbage, can be not useful can be fascinating and interesting and go nowhere. It has to be rooted in something that you dig deep to find out, well, how can that apply? What purpose does it have? How can it help somebody make their lives better? Yeah, I mean, if there's no purpose in doing it, then why why bother, right? Because like, you have to live, you know, both for yourself and for a reason. And if you're just doing things to fill time and space and use up energy, like, I mean, if it makes you feel good, there's something to it, but like, it's not, it's not progressing you forward. You're not moving anywhere. I love that because in the moment we do need good feelings. And I agree. I think there's a blend that is much more useful and it is knowing, uh, how we work, mind, body, spirit. You know, I sometimes I think of it as the back door. If somebody's having a real hard time, I ask them, what one baby step can you do? Pick one that is, you don't care if you break that pattern. You know, it's not a good pattern, but it's not an important one to you. Pick it. Because it's like going to a therapist. I, you know, years ago when I, in psychiatry, I was offered everything. Uh, top post research, I was offered all the education I wanted to become a psychiatrist. And I said, do you really think I want to hear from any of you? No, I do not. <laughs> I want to hear from me inside me because I get answers directly like you're supposed to get because I didn't need the books. Yeah. I could read, but I wasn't interested as much as what comes through. And I was fascinated by that. I wanted to know. 
And I can remember thinking that the most important part of all of it is application. So if you go to a therapist once a week or whatever, and I went to some uh, fascinating guy, primal therapy and roughing and a whole bunch of things. And then he offered me um, to join him and, and form a leader retreat with him. And I did. I loved it. And we became good friends. But that's how I think it should be when you open up, right? You're just friends, yeah. right? And that it, if we find that link inside us, we're much more comfortable in life, we're much easier. So for me, psychic is also accountable and responsible for how we present things and what we share in a way that becomes very useful to the other person. And if it's not useful, go away, don't do it. Just to prove that I can do something, What's the point? Yeah. On that, it makes me think of people who've walked over to me sometimes infrequently and years ago, and they'd say, one guy at a party, and he says, I'm a skeptic, prove it. <laughs> Have a good time. I'll have a party. He goes, no, 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 I really want to know. I said, okay, do me one favor and answer a question. What do you do? He said, no, no, just tell me. I said, no. Tell me what you do. He said, I'm a lawyer. I said, good. Go write up a contract for me. I said, I'm at a party. Yeah. <laughs> and I started walking away. And he said, wait, wait, I really want to know. I said, then do what I do. He said, what? I said, practice. So for me, it really is. Yeah, I use it for a purpose. It has to have a good purpose. Otherwise, I delete the button and say, no, thank you. I don't need to. I don't want, you know. When I had almost no money, and I was homeless at one time, I didn't care. I was fine. I lived in my car. I had a great time. I went cross country. <laughs> it didn't matter. But when I had my kids and uh, struggling financially, I wasn't struggling. I said, look, I will never sell my soul. And I won't get a job that I don't approve of. So I'm sticking to what I do because I love it. And if we have a hard time, we lose a house or anything, we'll pitch tents and pick fruit. It's not a big deal. Don't make it a big deal. Just trust yourselves and be yourself. That's more important because you got one life. It isn't about the money and it isn't about even in financial investments or, or you know, Wall Street and brokers. It shouldn't be about the money. Why do you want to do it? What's your purpose? To accrue money? You can't take it with you. So, yeah, it's nice to have a lot. It's nice to do a lot with it. But what are you doing that's worthwhile, that makes you feel peaceful, sleep at night well, feel spiritually fulfilled? Because even if you don't think you have a spirit, you do. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to, to kind of leave people to think on. Because it's been a running theme in the last couple, probably the last month or so, where it's like, look, and it all started with another podcaster who was on my show. And he said, how much can someone pay you? to be miserable for the rest of your life. And so it's the same thing where it's like, how, how little are you willing to make to be happy for the rest of your life? <laughs> like you have to look at both those things. And I think that's a lot of where we're driving. Um, mm -hmm. but I know I've, I've kept you around for over an hour and I've appreciated your time immensely. I wanted to give you some time to kind of plug your books and where people can find you if they go looking for you. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. So Amazon uh, for individuals, obviously, and other places online. And it's the life of a psychic detector just came out yesterday. Apparently, I didn't know they told <laughs> they gave me a different day. And all nature speaks conversations with pets and wildlife. All of them are about everything from missing pets and how to find them, what they taught me, to communicating with a horse. I've never been on one. I ended up working on you probably about a thousand from racetracks and paddocks to pleasure horses, show horses, ponies. I've been flown places to do it. I love it. I love working with animals. They're the best. So that's it. And my name is my website, nancywellenweber.com. Easy. All right. Well, I hope people check it out if they pick up the books, either of them. 
remember to leave reviews. I always drive this point home. I'm like, if you pick up a book, leave a review because reviews help these books get seen by more people and they help your authors, which is the whole point, right? Absolutely. And if I may, one more. Uh, I have a Nancy Allen Weber fan side created by a woman in Denmark uh, on my uh, Facebook as one of my places. I have a few. And anybody who wants to learn, I jump on sometimes. I do videos there. And there's uh, exercises in both books of how you do your own. Awesome. Well, then hopefully people check that out because that's easily accessible. Thank you, Colton. This has been I love talking with somebody who's so open and so clear about what matters. It's wonderful. Thank you. Yes, it's been a great conversation. And thank you again for coming on the show. It means a lot. Thank you. Thank you you for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. The only way to help the show grow is to get new listeners, so you can do your part by telling other people you know that you enjoy this podcast. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. To reach out to me, email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or send a message to any of the show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. That's all for this week. I'll see you all Monday for another artistic episode. Bye-bye.